We study billionaires, and this is episode 49 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for the Investors Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And uh, this is the second part interview that we have with Dr. Wesley Gray. And we're going to go ahead and cut to that tape right now. Okay, so uh, let's, uh, let's talk about ETFs again. So I think the difference between ETFs and mutual funds is really something that the public will realize the next five or 10 years. At least that is the, the trend I'm seeing in the market right now. But Wes, let's, uh, let's just make a shortcut through those five or 10 years. Let's just say, what is it the one secret, if there's any secret, there's the difference between ETFs and mutual funds. What is it that people uh, haven't realized yet? I, mean, I think tax is huge. That's probably 80% of it. And then the other one is the structural sales difference where it's disintermediated by nature. Uh, and that just lowers the cost of how I would deliver any strategy when the distribution is you know, at the margin, lower cost structurally. But yeah, tax and, is number one. Yeah, and perhaps we could revert to tax. Also, remember you said tax before. But yep. could you just very simply explain why is it that we can defer tax on ETFs, which is basically uh, mm-hmm. 80% that you're saying, and why is it that we have to pay tax on mutual funds? So I don't know why it is. That's just how the rules are set, but I can just explain how the rules work, right? So in a mutual fund construct, or any construct, frankly, outside of like an insurance company, there's all kinds of other ways you can deal with tax problems. But let's say we want to deal with, you know, the non-billionaire versions of these. Um, you can do a, a mutual fund, you could do a hedge fund, you could do a managed account, you could do like a limited partnership or a hedge fund structure. If it's a mutual fund, managed account or hedge fund structure, what will happen is if that portfolio trades and it has a gain, that needs to be distributed out to the clients on a K1 in the case of a hedge fund or some sort of 1099 in the case of a you know a mutual fund person or a managed account person. Um, and that's fine. That would actually also happen in an ETF if you traded securities in the ETF and you didn't trade them in kind through the authorized participants. Um, now, the essence of how the tax works, and this is how a lot of tax uh, ideas, concepts works, is banks have what they call mark-to-market P&L accounting, which means that if I were, let's say Stig is a bank and Preston is just some individual or registered investment company. If Preston gives Stig a $10 stock with a $0 basis and Stig is a bank, he doesn't give a shit, right? Because when he gets that security, he pulls it in with mark-to-market accounting. So his basis is 10. If he turns around and sells it immediately, he's no, he's indifferent. Now let's revert this. Let's say Stig is an individual. Preston is an individual. 
If Preston gives Stig a $10 security with $0 basis, Stig is going to swiftly turn around and punch Preston in the face because you just gave him a deferred capital gain liability, right? So the arbitrage, I guess you call it the tax arbitrage happens because we, we deal with two tax regimes. ETF structures or registered investment companies have flow through capital gain problems like you or I. Banks are mark to market. So by when we dump low basis stock on a bank, they're indifferent. And essentially that capital gain liability, you know, it, it vanishes. So and, and that's the same thing like they do structured products, swaps, all these other different tax minimization concepts that are out on the street that most, you know, people don't know about unless they got a large amount of dough. It all works on that, right? You go to a bank and if you want to swap, you say, listen, I don't want to pay capital gains on or day-to-day short term on the strategy. Can you, I'm going to give you this index. Can you write me a total return swap on this index? And so now instead of buying and holding the index, which has a lot of activity that would kill you on taxes, you go to the bank and they write a swap on that contract, which now you turn something that has a lot of taxes into something that is long-term tax deferred. It's the same kind of, it's just structuring and ETFs leverage the fact that, you know, banks and people or individuals or, or, or RICs, registered investment companies have a different tax regime. All right, Wes, I got a question for you. So recently, uh, billionaire Carl Icahn's been in the news about ETFs here because he got in a spat with Larry Fink, who's the uh, CEO of uh, BlackRock, mm-hmm. uh, about these bond ETFs, these junk bond ETFs, and their potential bottleneck for investors as they potentially try to exit those positions. So do you agree with Carl Icahn's position? And can you kind of describe some of the context of this being an expert in ETFs? Because I think a lot of people in the in the audience are very interested in this topic and really kind of understanding this potential junk bond bubble as well. Sure. So, I mean, obviously, Carl Icahn is a smart guy. Um, and so a lot of what he says is is potentially true. The problem is I think he may lack the institutional knowledge of how ETFs actually work. So if you remember, ETF structures are, you can arbitrage an ETF every day, right? So if there is a spread between underlying and NAV, you could do a market on close order at like 359.59. And if you know that the NAV is really $1, but the underlying is 99 cents, you know, it's free money basically, right? So there's, as long as there's a lot of competition and a lot of prop guys and market making desks that have supercomputers that literally have buttons that in real time figure out the bid aspect or bid ass spread costs, impact costs, what have you, and incorporate that into their little arbitrage mechanism. That spread is going to be tight because, and what, what that means is ETF liquidity is basically a reflection of the underlying liquidity under the assumption that that arbitrage mechanism continues and people like to make free money. So now let's look, if we know that given that assumption, arbitrage is is capable and ETFs are basically a reflection of the underlying liquidity, clearly ETFs that buy junk bonds, if junk bonds, if we go into an 08 financial crisis and there isn't a bid on junk bonds, you know, whether you own the junk bonds directly or whether you own them through an ETF, you're completely screwed. You're not getting any liquidity, but I don't think the ETF layer, 
you know, screws with the liquidity any more than just the underlying liquidity of the asset. Yeah. And I don't think uh, Icon really maybe fully appreciates that as, as much as maybe he should. Yeah. No, and I think uh, Stig and I see it the exact same way. I Now, what are your comments on the bond, the junk bond market being the potential next bubble? I'm real curious to hear your thoughts on that. Listen, my thought from an asset allocation perspective is that junk bonds are just another version of equity, just lower beta, right? And it, it, it figure out what you want to buy, what's the best value. Because in the end, you know, you, you when we build a portfolio, we don't care about diversification on the junk bonds versus equity in the normal sense. We care about when, you know, beta goes to, you know, terrible and the whole world blows up. Junk bonds, everything blows up. So I'd say just find the smartest way to gain generic equity exposure at the cheapest, best value and do that. And, you know, maybe avoid things like junk bonds where you're not getting comped for what your risk you're taking. I'm real curious to hear your opinion on this because I've heard um, this. This was a really interesting idea that somebody uh, threw at me. So my understanding is that this junk bond market is call it uh, anywhere from like ten to fifteen trillion dollars, which is just totally insane. Um, yeah. Of that amount, I guess three trillion of this is in debt that relates back to oil companies. Okay, and. Whenever you look at these oil prices, and now they're potentially going to even go as low as the $30 range. They're in the mid-40s and going lower right now. My understanding is all these big oil companies, they are not assuming that risk for that lower price. They had futures contracts locked in at call it $80, $75, or somewhere around in that price. So somebody basically insured that price point of call it $80, and now it's down in the, the $40 range, maybe even the 30 Somebody is eating that cost, and that is at an enormous, enormous value. Uh, And it's just a matter of how long that's going to take to play out of who is that person that's ultimately assuming that risk. Because I don't think it's the oil companies, even though they're getting slaughtered. I don't think it's the the big investment banks. I think it's people that are buying this junk debt, and I think it's been nested into there somehow to the tune of around $3 is the number that I'm hearing. And whenever that comes to fruition and people are going to have to start paying that bill... I think we're going to see something really interesting happening. And I, I can't help but look at the, the parallel to 2007, 2008, when oil prices went wild up to $150. It almost seems like that was the yin and now this is the yang. And you're seeing the, the exact same uh, circumstances play out and somebody is insuring that price. Uh, and I just don't know who it is. I, I know it's not me that's ensuring that price, but there's somebody out there that is, and I'm sure they don't know. Uh, and I'm yeah. real curious to hear your thoughts on that. So my thoughts are in fixed income is that, you know, people that trade equity are usually pretty smart. People that trade fixed income and bonds are really, really smart. Um, I just think <laughs> it's a way more competitive uh, marketplace. And just knowing who, which ones of my friends went that way versus equity, you know, I just don't want to compete in that space. It, th- there's a lot of nuance because the problem is you're exactly right. Like oil services or, or what have you could be a great example. But the question is, is it asset backed or not? So for example, if I own debt on Exxon, you know, you know, that debt's actually awesome because if it's asset backed by what Exxon owns, those assets, you know, that could be gold. Where, where if there's another situation where it's on an oil company, but it's just, you know, on the good faith and credit of Exxon, you know, that's a complete different story. So I think there's, and there's also callability. There's just so much nuance 
within bonds, I almost think like making a macro statement while you probably could in the end, the devil would, would be in the details on that uh, specifically, I think. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Yeah. My concern is the longer it stays down at that price, the worse this is going to get. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. Clearly. I mean, we took a big uh, energy bet because, I mean, we're value guys and you buy what everyone hates. And, you know, when, when prices shoot down and expect returns shoot up, uh, we and we know on average you're, you're exploiting that psychology of uh, you know oppression and hatred. Um, you know that's just what you got to do. But clearly, you know oils at like whatever forty forty five bucks. You know could it go to thirty? Could it go to twenty? Sure. 
you know, is that the marginal cost of extraction for the average player? No, you know, the equilibrium probably needs to be around 75 to 80, but that could happen next week or could happen 50 years from now after they're already all bust. Um, so it's a risk reward, I'd say. Yeah, another thing I want to talk about, and, and I'm reverting here to, to value investing into EFs again, is, uh, is Joe Greenblatt. So uh, Joe Greenblatt is a fantastic writer. I think uh, most of the audience, they're familiar with his work and the magic formula. And what I'm experiencing right now in my inbox is that a lot of people, they're saying, uh, have you read uh, Toby's book? Or they know I've read Toby's book, uh, Quite Smoothable, and also uh, Toby's book that he wrote with you, Quantitative Value. And they're basically saying, so what do you think about that when you compare that to the magic formula? But actually, I think I want to forward that question again to you, because uh, clearly I have some, some opinion about Greenblatt and, and also have uh, uh, some, some opinion about what you're doing. Uh, it shouldn't sound like a threat <laughs> or anything. I think yeah. it's really interesting what you're doing. But I don't know if you could just wrap up like your research on Joe Greenblatt's formula. Sure. So in the end, one has to really sit back and think, why does value investing work? Okay. So when I was a kid and I had my grandmother making me read like intelligent investment and all these other things, I was like, oh, you know, value works because I'm just going to go figure out the DCF. And as long as it's lower than intrinsic value, you know, like over time values its own catalyst. Okay. That's kind of incarnation one of value investing. Then I started thinking about it. In the end, how you make money in a market is, is very simple. Front run expectations. If you know how the market forms an expectation and you know how they're going to have that expectation formed in the future and you can bet ahead of that, you will make money by construction because market prices reflect you know, current expectations and immediately reflect changes in expectations. So then we think back to the value anomaly, how and why it works. And if you look back in the research, going back to LaConstruct Cypher Vishni, these guys called LSV, which is a huge asset management firm with $500 billion. They make this point that the reason value works is because investors form expectations that fail to consider or appreciate systematic mean reversion in fundamentals. What does that mean? That means, or what do they find? Not what does that mean? That means that the cheapest securities out there, their fundamentals tend to all on average do better than expected. The most expensive securities in the marketplace, their fundamentals tend to do worse than expected. Okay. So that is at fundamentally why primarily psychology overreaction to bad news overreaction to good news that is the so-called value anomaly period it's all about price to fundamentals now let's go think about something like quality so everyone likes to think that warren buffett you know because he kind of changed the mantra from ben graham ben graham said buy cheap stuff margin of safety period Warren Buffett comes along and says, well, that's interesting. You know, I hate taxes. I like to compound over the long haul. I'm going to buy cheap, but I'm also going to really focus on quality. Okay. So now we got to ask ourselves, we know why price and cheapness works. It goes back to that psychology of, uh, you know, people form expectations that are screwed up because they failed to appreciate mean version fundamentals. When we look at quality, 
at the outset, before we just say, well, quality sounds good, we got to understand why would that be mispriced? And I would argue that there is no psychology to suggest that quality is mispriced in the market. Everybody knows that Google is a great company. Everybody knows that Procter & Gamble can sell, you know, toothpaste at 50% margin while everyone else can't. So why would you build systems that organically don't have an edge and it doesn't even make intuitive sense that they're going to give you ability to front run expectation? And you, and you do that by basically incorporating quality at the outset, like the magic formula. It's just diluting the performance of the anomaly. I, I really wanted to, to talk about quality because one of the things that I really uh, find interesting about Greenblatt's formula is because he's saying quality that is returned on capital. Then when I read your work, Wes, you're saying uh, basically that quality is not that important or you shouldn't just say that's the same as return on capital. And then I read your white paper, which is telling us about how you invest mm-hmm. in your fund. And it actually also includes return on capital. And, yeah. and I'm curious to see, how do you look at uh, quality differently than Greenblatt? Preston, do you want to make comment? Yeah, I, because I'll answer that question for you. I think it's important to highlight that Wes is most likely saying that based off of a basket of stocks, not individual stocks. But go ahead, Wes. Sorry, Dan. Yeah, yeah. The, the, what I'm talking about is average effect. So th- this is a very nuanced point that a lot of people overlook with respect to quality. So what I'm saying is that there's clear evidence based on, and there's also a lot of psychology research suggests that price and cheapness works because of the, the the overreaction to fundamentals thing. At the outset, if I just sort securities on quality. Of course, you don't see any sort of spread on average because intuitively, why would that be mispriced? It, it's it's like obvious. It's quality. So why would at the outset quality be weighed equally to price to fundamentals when we already know that quality is a price component of value, and then price to fundamentals is a is tends to be a misprice element. Where you want to use quality? is it's the ordering that matters. So the magic formula is all about 50%, you know, EBIT total enterprise value, 50% EBIT rock. It's basically 50% quality, 50% price. And that's fine. It works because it's 50% price, but it actually is diluted because it's 50% quality. Now, a smarter way to do that, that's also grounded in actual like evidence and psychology research is get to price First, that's where the anomaly is, the cheap, crappy stocks that everybody hates, right? Now, when we have two cheap, crappy stocks or, or, or what are perceived as cheap, crappy stocks, but one is, you know, huge debt, losing a lot of money and sells at a PE of five. The other one is, you know, no debt, you know, maybe not, but they're making money, you know, PE of five. Now we can argue, because there's another thing about what they call limited attention to fundamentals. And this is like the Piotrowski work where you say, okay, now we've got cheap. This is the anomaly. But within that, people just throw the baby out with the bathwater and don't pay attention to fundamentals amongst those most hated. And now we can use that in a beneficial way, not a way that like shoots ourselves in the foot like the magic formula does. So I totally agree with that analysis. And I think it'd be really interesting to see 
Um, how many of those companies that aren't highly leveraged that are in that PE ratio that you're describing of like a five, how many of them have a change of management uh, that causes their price to come back up? I'd be really curious to know what that percentage would be um, as you'd be doing that analysis. And I don't know if you've done that research or not, but I would think that it'd be extremely high. Well, yeah. So I can, I can tell you something uh, we have done is going back to that data mining we did on valuation metrics popped out, you know, enterprise multiples or, or just EBIT TV, basically what we use. Toby talks a lot about that or perturbations in, in his book, Deep Value. You know, we actually went and said, well, you know, we don't want to just be data miners. We want to be evidence-based investors. And one of our hypotheses is that it is kind of also related to deep value is cheap EBIT total enterprise value stocks are not just cheap to maybe like some guys like me or you who are in the public equity, but private equity guys focus on those sort of metrics, right? Because they, they got to buy this whole company. So one of the things we said is, I wonder if the most, if you just sort securities into like, say your most extreme PE stocks, like or cheapest PE stocks and your cheapest, uh, you know, EBIT total enterprise value yield stocks, is there a higher propensity for takeout from private equity is much higher for those extreme enterprise, cheap enterprise multiple firms than cheap PE firms? Because, you know, that that's how a lot of times you're winning in pub, public equities. You're buying cheap equity that the outside guys want. And then you get your premium on the takeout or whatever. So I think it's certainly the case that, um, you know, Private equity is a good uh, good person to sell out to if you buy cheap public equity stocks. So, Wes, one of my biggest concerns moving into this next crash, whenever that might be, and we have no idea when it's going to be, but whenever it does happen, one of our biggest concerns is that people are going to get back into the market too quickly. The reason that we feel that uh, equities are going to maybe get punished a little longer than they did during the 2009 turndown is because the Fed doesn't have the tools that they had at their disposal back in 2008, 2009. Back then, they could lower interest rates and they could do QE. Now, they're pretty much left because I don't think interest rates are going to get high before the next crash. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. You already have Carl Icahn putting on credit default swaps and things like that, which you know he's not going to do that unless he thinks it's going to be in the in the near term. But with all that said, we don't think that the Fed has a lot of tools at their disposal except for quantitative easing, which would devalue the dollar. So mm-hmm. my concern at this point is how useful and how much of that can they do without drastically putting big waves into the market with real estate and other things? And do you maybe see commodities as being a really good play in that interim between uh, market downturn and time to get back into equities as you wait for that to happen? Sure. So, um, are you guys familiar with, uh, managed futures at all by chance? No, I'm not. Okay. So, so let, let me explain how we deal with this problem. Um, so our issue is after thinking long and hard, we realize that we don't know anything and have no edge in trying to predict exactly whether we're going to go hyperinflation or hyperdeflation. So if you can't predict you need to build systems that front run these things. And, and you basically use the predictions of the marketplace to kind of help you to move your assets. So one of the tools that we leverage is the concept of managed futures, which is in the typical most famous managed future construct is just short-term trend falling. So an example, 
the prices uh, above the 100 day moving average, you're long, otherwise you're short. We do that system across the commodity complex and the bond complex across the globe. Idea being is that if all of a sudden something you said mentions, like there starts to be a trend where bonds start, you know, blowing up or maybe they don't, maybe they stay flat, but now all of a sudden we're getting like a, like an inflation expectation problem. You're going to start seeing that movement in the underlying commodity contracts. Short-term trend falling is going to get you into that trend early. And if it actually expresses itself, you're going to make a ton of money. And it essentially, it serves as like a portfolio insurance because it's going to protect you whether you, you, we go into an extreme bond scenario where we become Japan and it's going to protect you if we go into extreme um, you know, commodity scenario if we become Zimbabwe. And we just leverage managed future technologies and kind of structures to kind of front run and get ahead of those trades. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So is there something that uh, the individual person could access to help them with, uh, with doing that? Yeah. I mean, there, there's man, AQR has, I mean, there's, there's managed products you can do. There's man, you know, uh, AQR has a mutual fund. There's FUTs. It's like some ETF that basically does short-term trend following. Um, you can also just do it yourself. I mean, just go to, go get account interactive brokers, uh, learn, learn a little bit about futures trading. I mean, it's a little bit complex, but you could do it yourself or there's a lot of different managed future offerings out there. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, that's what I mean, or just, or you could just trend follow across like DBC and I don't know, IEF, like the iShares 10 year bond and, you know, some generic ETF commodity complex and just do kind of a, a simplified version of uh trend following. Uh, that, that's and just, that's what I would do to yep. deal with that problem. Okay, Wes. So, um, let's, uh, let's go back to, uh, to ETFs in, in general. And, um, actually I would like to, to talk about your, uh, ETFs, uh, yeah. As I can see right now, you have two active uh, managed ETFs. You have one that is U.S. and one that is international. I'll make sure to link to to the white paper the that you've been reading about the philosophy uh, behind it. But perhaps you could just uh, break it down to us. I know you have like five somewhat simple steps that you go through and 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 find the uh, the stocks you ultimately want to invest in. Sure. Yeah. So for the two value ETFs at a real high level, what we're trying to do is simple. Buy the cheapest, highest quality value stocks, do it at an affordable price, tax deferred, period. With tons of tracking error, we're not trying to benchmark hug whatsoever, five, 10 year horizon. So how the heck do we do that? Well, going back to the, this outline of this five-step process, and I'll put some numbers on it. Let's say the universe has a thousand names, mid-large liquid domestic equity that's, you know, that has shares outstanding. We actually trade. So we have a thousand names. Step two is one of the, the problems with value investing is catching that proverbial falling knife. It's the firm that's, it's cheap because there's a good shot. It's going to go bankrupt in the next six months or it's cheap because the numbers are fake. So step two is all about forensic accounting, leveraging technology from various academic research papers to try to forensically identify who might be that falling knife. And all we're going to do there is if you pop as the worst 5% relative to all our securities, even if you're Walmart, I don't care, we're booting you out. It's just a red flag. Okay. And let's say that brings us from a thousand names to 900. So now we have a universe of 900 names that we've at least tried to eliminate anything that could be like a total permanent loss of capital. Is it going to be perfect? No, but we need to do something. Then step three, because we want to exploit the actual value anomaly, we get down to cheap 
fast. So we want to look at that top decile cheap based on enterprise multiples, right? So now we're down to 90 securities. Once we have these 90 securities that are the cheapest securities in the universe that literally everyone pretty much hates, which we like, our job is then to try to identify which ones of those are the highest quality. Because we think that those firms that are cheap, but also have evidence for high quality, have a higher shot of ability to mean revert back to you know their previous life form than firms that are cheap and like totally pieces of crap. Um, and so if we have 90 securities, step four in that quality section, we're going to split it, get down to, in this case, 45 securities. Um, and then after trading execution and all the realities of the marketplace because of liquidity, maybe we get down to 35 to 40. That's that's the portfolio we hold. Yeah, yep. I'm I'm actually very curious about the the number of stocks you're holding because I think mm-hmm. I looked it up and it was actually very accurate to what you just said. I think it was 41 stocks or something you hold uh, you, that you were having in the uh, in the uh, U.S. I'm I'm curious about the number of stocks. Um, like why you want to say something like 40? Because if you think about, especially in terms of something like Greenblatt, to some extent I would think that you might want to have less stocks. I don't know how many. Uh, if you look at it from, say, an academic standpoint, you would say something like uh, 20 stocks, 25 stocks, because that means that you don't have exposure to uh, the individual stock, but you have like a generic stock market exposure. Um, so I'm thinking, why not have fewer stocks and then omit some of the transaction costs and perhaps also uh, then be more heavily invested in the cheaper stocks? Yeah, no, I, I uh, totally agree. Like there's there's kind of a sweet spot there between say 20 and, and 40 or 50 where diversification benefits kind of go away. Um, the primary reason, frankly, is, is we're subject to the 1940 Investment Company Act and there's just limitations. So you can't have over 25% in a, in a given uh, industry, for example. You can't have over 5% in a given name. And even though we could kind of get down to the margin on that. You don't want to do that. You want to build a lot of buffer where, you know, if you're at 4% and the limit is five, you know, that's just kind of bad. (laughs) You don't want to run afoul basically of SEC rules. So, so we kind of, we try to optimize given regulatory regulation constraints, basically. All right, Wes. So this is one of the questions we really like to ask everybody that comes on the show. And if there's only one book that you could recommend to our audience uh, that has really had an impact on you, what would that book be? I'm sure someone said this, but I'm I'm a huge fan of Dan Kahneman, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, just because I, I think psychology and understanding the human mind and how it forms expectations is basically investing. Uh, the rest is details. So I, I think that book is uh, maybe not very exciting, but a, a good book about learning about how the human mind actually works. I love that. I'm I'm so happy you said that, Wes. Uh, not I think it was a few days ago. Preston and I we were emailing back and forth about the what are the next books we're going to do, and uh, and that was actually on it. So <laughs> boom, and we didn't even plan this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a like I said, I I have it sit by me. It's more of a reference book because it's pretty boring if you've ever read it. it's like 800 pages but i just think it's a great book and that guy's really smart i love that that's too awesome okay yep so just so everyone knows we'll be reading that book we'll be doing an executive summary people that sign up for our mailing list get our free executive summary of all the books that we read so uh that one will be in the future stick do you know the timeline when that might come out it's going to be in a few months though 
Yeah, it's probably going to be eight weeks from now. It's going to be four books from now. So that's probably <laughs> like something like eight weeks. All right. So that's that's coming up. All right. So what we're going to do right now, and we're going to keep Wes on the on the call here so that we can answer this question together with all three of us. And we're going to take a question from our audience. And just so you know, Wes, we have people that record questions and then we play them on the show and then we provide uh, feedback and and our best answer that we can muster. And this week's question comes from Kevin Karahara. And here we go. Hi, Preston and Stig. Thanks for all the hard work that you do. I'm learning so much from your podcast. You both mentioned the importance of questioning your own beliefs, or a sort of self-interrogation in order to get the optimal answer. That being said, what are your views on the practice of growth investing as opposed to value investing? Are there any virtues that can be drawn from growth investing? Thanks and keep up the good work. All right, Kevin, I am so glad we have Wes on the call because I think he could probably give you a lot better response than I can. Um, I don't personally do any growth investing, so I'm probably the, the worst person to ask that question to. Um, I, I don't know about Stig's opinion, but let's throw it over to Wes first and hear what he has to say. And we're definitely putting him on the spot because he had no idea we were going to play that question. Uh, let's hear what he has to say. Yeah, no, no problem. I've uh, heard it all at this point. Um, so just so you know, our, we have two firm beliefs, uh, systematic decision-making and evidence-based investing. And that evidence-based investing uh, creates a problem when we start talking about growth-based investing. It's just, I can't find any evidence to suggest that it actually works over the long haul. And so if we can't find evidence that it works, then we're just not going to do it. I understand why a lot of people do do it because it's way cooler. You know, investment banks want to promote these names for various, you know, service offerings or what have you. But we just don't participate because we have belief in evidence-based investing. And I don't have any evidence on hand to suggest that it works. So not that it's bad. It's just for me personally, that's what we believe in. So we, we can't do it. Yeah, and Kevin, I think that's uh, I think it's a great question uh, because you're saying are there any similarities? And basically, when we talk growth investing and value investing, it's kind of the same thing, and then it's not. It's kind of the same thing because basically you are, as I also mentioned before, um, discounting the future cash flow and compared to the price. Now, the problem with growth investing is that you are reliant on having high growth rates, which is just a very speculative. Uh, way of, of investing compared to to uh, value investing, which Preston and I talk about, and what also uh, Wes is doing in his fund. And I just want to say that when you hear these stories about people that have been rich from uh, growth stocks, um, and one name that comes to mind would be something like Elon Musk, uh, because I'm reading a book about him right now. But you know, he has not become rich because he bought a lot of great growth stocks. You know, these guys that usually get rich of growth stocks is because they created the assets and then made the IPO and sold the stocks. It's really, really hard to find people that had just found really good tech stocks and just invested in that. That's, um, that's really hard. And, and Wes was also talking about the empirical evidence. Uh, I found a great article uh, from Fidelity and I'll show to, to link to that in the show notes. And if you look from 1980 to 2010, so both year included, that is 31 years, uh, you can actually see that for large cap stocks, so large cap growth compared to large cap value, large cap value outperformed 1.7% annual compounding, and the small value cap uh, is 
percent. That's massive. If you have ten thousand uh, dollars to invest in, uh, that's hundred and eighty-eight thousand dollars compared to six hundred and one thousand dollars over thirty-one years. So it's it's really a massive difference if you look at the empirical evidence between growth and value. So, Kevin, fantastic question. Um, we're so excited that you uh, recorded it for us. For anybody else out there, if you want to get your question played on our show, go to asktheinvestors.com and you can record your question there. And for Kevin, we're going to send you a free signed copy of our book, The Warren Buffett Accounting Book, uh, for asking your question. So uh, we really want to thank Dr. Wesley Gray for coming on our show today. Um, if you haven't noticed, the guy knows what he's talking about. It was pretty amazing to hear some of his responses to these difficult questions. And um, Wes, thank you for taking the time out of your your busy day to talk with us on the show. No problem, gentlemen. Really love what you guys are doing. And uh, yeah, our mission is to empower investors for education. Wes, if, if people want to find out more about you, where can they find you? And talk about your book, Quantitative Value. Just kind of give people a handoff so that they know where they can uh, read more about you. Uh, best spot is just go to alphaarchitect.com and click on the blog. Uh, and if you want to buy the book, uh, we actually sell it. We we bought a whole bulk buy from the publisher because we don't want to make money on the book. And if you click on a link from our website, you can buy it for nineteen ninety nine as opposed to like 50 bucks or whatever the heck uh, the publisher wants. So alphaarchitect.com. And if you buy it through the link on our website, you know it's nineteen ninety nine on Amazon, which is basically our cost. Awesome. So what we'll do is we'll have a link in our show notes to that, uh, what Wes is talking about and anything else that we've talked about during the show. Just go to our show notes. You'll see that all there. And then you can hop on over where he's offering it for $19.99. So Wes, thank you so much for offering that up to our community. I know that they're going to greatly appreciate that. Sure. Appreciate it. All right, guys. So that's all we have for you. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.